It's the Mego Museum Podcast. Scott and Ryan each sold separately. Hey, welcome back to the Mego Museum Podcast with Scott and Brian. So last week was all about the 2011 Covey Awards and everything that's going on in the Remigo world. Uh, next week, we will bring you the results of the uh, voting, including uh, your calls to our new voicemail line at 213-444-MEGO, 213-444-MEGO. So there is still time to call in and leave a message. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but this week, we are getting back to our vintage roots. One of the things that we love to do on the Mego Museum podcast when we get a chance is to bring you interviews with people from uh, Mego's glorious past. And uh, today we've got a really cool interview t with a name that I had never really heard before, um, a fellow by the name of Lauren Kotzer. Who is Lauren Kotzer, Brian? Uh, Lauren Kotzer is the son of Morris Kotzer, and he he runs a company called, and still to this day runs a company called Parkdale Novelty. Um, Lauren's dad was Mego in Canada for several years, and I should preface this interview with Lauren's dad knows my dad. My dad was in the toy business back in the seventies, and and used to buy Mego, especially closeouts, Action Jackson, uh, the Western heroes, uh, Planet of the Apes, from Lauren's dad Morris. Now Lauren is about, I'd I'd say a few years older than me, so he experienced a lot of this as a teenager working in his dad's warehouse. Mm. So, so the glory days of Mego, he remembers them very well. And it's it's a very interesting piece. I've I've met Lauren several times before. Uh, we've we've happened to work the same trade shows, and I have harassed the heck out of this guy. And it was really nice of him to come on and talk about um, his 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 background with Migo and that sort of thing. And and um, at, at the time of this interview, which I will admit was a little late. He was auctioning off his 12-inch Mego Superman prototype at Hakes, if you recall. Yes. His father is pretty much famous for creating the 12-inch superheroes for Mego. Is that right? Yeah. He was a believer, as, as the interview will detail, he was a believer in the 1-6 scale. He liked G.I. Joe. He liked giving people more money, for more bang for their buck. And uh, he, when Mego, Mego made anything that he wanted – if you if you paid for it, so he he was the guy who who got the ball rolling on twelve inch heroes. So and it, hmm? go, I'm, I'm sorry. So so, so Parkdale was a uh, uh, was a distributor of toys in Canada, or were they also a manufacturer? They were a distributor of toys. I think they got their own made. As as the history of of the um, will be unfolded in in the interview, his dad used to go to um, Japan to import toys, and I right. think that's where the friendship with David Abrams sprung up. Right. And um, at the time, you know, there was very few guys doing that, and so Parkdale was a pre-existing company and still exists this, to this day. Mego never would actually open up a foreign office. There's no Mego UK. There's no Mego Canada. There was, right. It was always relying on third-party distributors. Right. Yeah, and so and so and then Parkdale and Parkdale didn't just distribute Amigo; they distributed uh, other toys as well, correct? Yeah, but uh, for the for the most part, the thing that they were really famous for were the Amigo toys. Uh -huh. um, whereas you get to other people that distributed Amigo, like Grand Toys in Canada, where they did they carried AHI's stuff and 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 they carried uh, LJN's things. Parkdale was pretty consistently all Amigo, and they did a lot of plush. And they still do a lot of plush to this day. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, and and something that's that's discussed a little bit in the interview um, is that the, in a way the the Par Parkdale is is responsible for a lot of the toys that are in really good Mego collections to this day. Yeah, and that's that's one of the personal things I, I wanted to talk about too. Is when I started uh, getting interested in collecting toys, uh, my Dad had a friend over, and that friend said, "Oh, you should take him to see Morris. He still has all that stuff." So we <laughs> hopped in the car, and I was 15 years old with a couple hundred dollars in my pocket. Oh, and man. and Lauren, Lauren's dad, who was uh, probably in his 60s at the time, uh, let me in, 
and let me root around. And I, I will tell you this, the showroom still had Star Trek Mego figures. <laughs> they, they were selling superheroes bundled with Action Jackson costumes. Uh, oh, that and, set, you see, you see that around on, on eBay every now and then. Yeah, well, I've never seen it. I've never seen a shrunk wrap one quite like these. They, they would put a boxed Batman and two AJ outfits. And I'll never forget it. In their showroom was a Spider-Man in an Action Jackson cowboy outfit. Oh my god. Cuz they were just trying they were trying to to get rid of this excess inventory. Mm. And they had some crazy stuff and I'll remember I was looking around. He's just letting me look around. On a desk were was a a wad like 6 inch thick wad of those Mego film strip catalogs. And just sitting there like they had like they'd been there for 20 years. Are you kidding me? No, I, oh. I never forget that. <laughs> and um, you know, I don't know what happened to them, but he let me take one. So, but oh, yeah, it, so it was. A, I really owe my collection to um, to Morris Kotzer, and yes, he was responsible for a lot of the twelve-inch heroes, primarily almost all of the Star Trek that is in your collection. If you have a mint on card, Kirk, it probably came from Canada. Um, the Wonder Woman, a lot of the 12-inch Wonder Woman stuff was uh, was closed out. The 12-inch Heroes, did I already mention that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Action Jackson outfits. Mm-hmm. And and there's an explanation as to that in the interview that I find quite colorful and fun. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And a lot of the stuff that um, that came that was in Mark Huckabone's inventory came directly from the, the Parkdale warehouse. Isn't that correct? Some of it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I, mean, Mark. I, just, I just remember hearing him tell stories about basically doing the same thing you did when when he was a kid. Well, to be honest with you, the the, the people that really did the major cultivation of it was a, a a couple by the name of Brad and Jeannie, who are friends of mine. Um, they have a company called or they have, yeah I think they're still in business, Amazing Third Planet. And these guys were the you know the they were pickers back before there were pickers. Okay. And they that was their job. They they would run around to warehouses and go, got any old movie posters, got any old toys. And they made amazing finds in the eighties that I think they're still they're still reaping the rewards of. So they were the ones that backed up a truck at Parkdale and bought a great deal of it. And a lot of people might remember the amazing third planet ads in Starlog. Okay. They used to put ads in Starlog, Mr. Spock, thirty dollars, Mego Frankenstein, twenty five, you know, and it was they were they were amazing ads, and they had their own store. They had they even used to, in the eighties, run Star Trek, Mego TV commercials. You know, selling them the sets to collectors late at night. No kidding. Jeff. Yeah, I remember they showed me that. Uh, when... so. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's where the pioneers that's... pioneers of collectibles. They were, they were. Everybody laughed at them. <laughs> I don't think anyone laughed at them. But... Well, somebody laughed all the way to the bank, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's and those those are folks we should try and get on the podcast. I got to track them down. Um, but yes, they this is this is the legacy that the Kotzers uh, had on the Mego collecting uh, community. I think it affected almost all of us. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. If you love Action Jackson, you should thank Parkdale Novelty <laughs> and Milton Berle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned for the for, to the interview to for, for an explanation of that of that reference. Um, before we before we begin the interview, one last thing I have to ask, um, as a completely uh, uninformed American, um, and really those are those are pretty hard to find. But uh, who is Elliot Trudeau? Uh, Pierre Elliot Trudeau. Pierre Elliot Trudeau. He's our prime minister. Why? Would anybody want a Joe Namath style doll of Pierre Elliott? A fuddle duddle? Um, <laughs> wow, I forgot about that. Pierre Elliott Trudeau had a huge following in Canada. Um, we don't have, I'm getting a little political here, we don't have um, vibrant politicians in Canada very often. We're We're, we're a very kind of. <laughs> Drab. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I don't know how to explain it. it we're, we're you know we we're very sensible and kind of buttoned down in that regard. Sensible and shoes kind of people. Sensible shoes kind of people when it comes to our politics. Um, whereas 
when Trudeau first came into office in the late 60s, there was something called Trudeau mania. He was really popular and he changed the face of Canada. But the reason that uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to get a little blue here. And the reason I think that they wanted to do that doll and call it Fuddle Duddle is um, it was it was rumored at the time in Parliament Pierre openly mouthed "f you" to his uh, opponent. Wow! And when they asked him about it, he said, "Oh, I didn't say this, Fuddle Duddle." And so I think it was one of those kind of like sarcastic, anti-government, goofy things to do. And you know, it was the early '70s, so it makes perfect sense that he would want to, uh, to uh, capitalize that on that a little bit. However, it's probably wise he didn't make that doll. I doubt it would have sold. Okay. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, there's a lot of cool stories in this interview, and uh, it's fun to listen listen in on uh, uh, basically you know a couple of toy toy business brats uh, <laughs> talking about the good old days. So thanks for putting it together and let's have a listen to Brian's interview with Lauren Kotzer. Not a lot is known about Parkdale Novelty and your connection to Mego, and I think it's actually pretty important, uh, you know, your family's business. Yeah, you know, uh, my dad was with them from the start. Oh, really? So well, like, I think Mego started the early 50s. Mm-hmm. So I think they hooked up around the mid fifties to the later fifties. How did how did they meet? I think just at, in traveling in Japan. Oh, I see. Okay, so your they dad was met. already importing. Yeah, so my father went, but nineteen fifty five, which in the day was very early to go to Japan. Right. There were very few importers were going then. It was just sort of, uh, you know, we had fact he had factories that had mud floors and one single bulb. Like that's what the factory in Japan looked like back then. Uh-huh. They were really crude, and uh, you went for a month to two months. You know that's how long it took to get around. And uh, you know this is before you you didn't even phone you couldn't even phone these factories. They barely had a phone. Right. So it was uh, you. Uh, then they shipped them later, and uh, hopefully everything was good. Yeah. And a lot of it wasn't. It was all sorts of goods, not just toys. Right. Souvenir items and novelty items, you know, from pillowcase, you know, everything you can imagine that you would be bringing into a, uh, like a five and dime type of store. Uh-huh. And that's what they were bringing in. Which would have included a lot of what Migos lines were back in those days. Yeah, and then the then the cheaper toys, so all the cigar store toys, basically. Yeah. That, that kids, you know, that were cheaper and. Uh, and uh, and back then, you know, Japan wasn't really known for its quality yet. It was a, uh, you know, cheap toys, and uh, and then they started buying. I think when the um, when they started doing uh, with uh, Dave, my father and Dave Evans would like buy together because you know if you can buy two hundred dozen instead of one hundred dozen, it was a you know a better deal, a better deal. Right. So they start buying together. And then uh, eventually, though, because, you know, if you have the U.S. market, you're just going to get that much bigger faster. So my father was buying 200 dozen. He was buying 500 dozen. And that's where they uh, they started doing business together. Right. Very informally. They would go see a factory together, place orders together, and then it would each come to their different ways. Right. And then I guess during the late 60s, that started to change where Migo started designing their own toys. Yeah, I think they got mid '60s on. They started, you know, getting a little more creative, uh-huh. like Maddie mods and that type of thing. Yeah, where they where they were, uh, um, you know, thinking a little outside the box and just going over to Japan and or Taiwan or Hong Kong, let's say, and buying what they offered. They would start go and design stuff. Right, and that would that would include, I guess, fighting Yank. Fighting Yanks and all those, yeah, other weird stuff, all sorts of things. But back, you would see in the mid-60s, a lot of, like, you could find a robot that would say Mego, but would also be, have, be made by three other companies. Right. And, like, you know, Azure Camway, all these other guys would be doing the same exact toys, um, but slapping their name on it. So I guess in the late 60s, Mego got a little more uh, creative and started designing their own toys. Mm-hmm. Do you do you uh, did, did Parkdale Novelty bring in the Joe Namath doll? No, 
No, I didn't think but, so. Um, actually, my father around the same time was going to bring in a variation of like a pure Trudeau doll. Oh, really? Yeah. It was a uh, what's the call? You know, what was a uh, fuddle doll? You know, he Buddy, was fuddle pretty, doodle. Yeah, it was like a fuddle little doll. It was around the same time. So you were gonna, you were going to get like Migos Factory to make a, a Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Yeah, we would actually we would have to name it a little different, but it would be well. It would be. It would, yeah, it would look like. I get what you're saying. Oh, that's. that's I don't know what happened to that. I think you got cold feet on that one, but that was <laughs> that was the idea around the same time. Oh, what a missed opportunity! There might there might be a sample shoved somewhere in the deep breath, you know, somewhere in a box somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> is, uh, that's all. And. Uh, that's. I, I hope it's found someday, and you let me know. Yeah. Um, the uh, Action Jackson must have been the game changer, though. That's when you guys. Yeah, yeah and my father. Yeah, I remember when I was about ten years old. They, you know, around then, my father came back from New York. Uh-huh. They had debuted at the um, toy fair, and I think they had. Um, they had Milton Berle. That's right. Uh, yeah. Was their keynote. You know, and my father actually was a huge Milton Berle fan, or still is, you know, whatever. And uh, probably had a couple extra drinks, and he bought a lot of Action Jackson, like uh, yeah. $10,000, dozen, 10, dozen, dozen, something crazy. Yeah, my my father bought a lot of Action Jackson off your father. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, and then with Action Jackson came all the TV commercials. Yeah, I was gonna say that changed you guys a bit. Yeah, so we actually, well, Migo in the U.S. would did a lot of the borders. Like they would do Buffalo and things. Right. But we uh, did, you know, Commander. You know, like, Buffalo would be like Commander Tom and all yep. those sort of shows. But in Canada, we did the shows in Canada, so we were, you know, doing a lot of advertising. Like on Uncle Bobby and such. Yeah, exactly, Uncle Bobby. You know, yeah. The Saturday morning shows. Yeah. So. Uh, I, mm-hmm. Was Action Jackson a hit in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, it was a big hit, and uh, it was all commercial-driven. You know, that was new for us. Cause, you know, if you just put Action Jackson in the store, it wouldn't have done anything. Right. But we really pushed it, and it was pretty, uh, I guess it was, I don't know how, you know, it was different than um, G.I. Joe. It was more, it had a different sort of tone to it, and it had a lot of cool accessories. And I presume, I really don't know myself, but I presume it was cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Than G.I. Joe. So, uh and then uh, I guess they decided to start licensing, and they had, you know they already had the expertise with all the GI Joe, uh, sort of the uh, Ashton Jackson stuff, and all the accessories and outfits and parachute packs and you know fireman outfits. They had everything they needed to just yeah. create everything else. Which they, uh, it's a pretty big line. They, they jumped in pretty quickly. Yeah. And then after that came the superheroes, and and uh, yeah. Parkdale was on that immediately. I'm assuming. Yeah, all the yeah, that was a it was pretty easy to sell that stuff. I, yeah. I and I think at one for years we had the full page of the Sears catalog. Yeah. Which was that was like the biggest deal you can do in Canada. Yeah, and then from that you get Canadian Tire and Eaton Simpsons, all the everybody followed suit. Right, but Sears was the big get. Correct. Sears, yeah, Sears was like you get a page in the Sears catalog, and that was that set. To, you know, everybody had to buy after that. Do you remember any sort of like toy fair promotions you guys did for the superheroes? Did you do store appearances, anything like that? Um, well, we only did. I remember the the Planet of the Ape guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that. We had the outfits and stuff. Not that much else. I think they did a lot more in the U.S. You know, they did the. Macy's parades and all that stuff. We didn't really, maybe we weren't as ambitious with all that type of thing as they were. Uh, you see, I just remember the um, superheroes showing up at Wolco, and I was wondering if that was uh, sponsored by Parkdale or if that was just something Marvel Comics was doing. I, you know what? I, I wouldn't want to say either way. Yeah. I don't think so. Like maybe they did some, like, came up from the States. It was a big deal to have, you know, like superhero appearances. Even today, I. I I do licenses now, and mm-hmm. getting, you know, Wonder Woman or somebody to show up at a show is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it was a little laxer back in the day, but it was, you know, they have to make sure everything is uh, perfect. 
Right. Now, um, I th- I seem to recall you telling me that the Planet of the Apes costume that Parkdale yeah. used for store appearances was stolen. Yeah, it was stolen. It was, well, I think Eaton Center. Yeah, they um, they had a five hundred dollar deposit, which they I guess they never they had to eat, but you know, so it was worth a lot. It was supposedly the outfit was um, from one of the uh, from the one of the movies. Uh huh. It was like the 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 main actors all had full makeup, but the guys in the background, yeah, they, they had the mask. Mm-hmm. So that's what was supposedly a costume from right from the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, Somebody has it somewhere, I guess. When know. I when I was in college, I saw one on Young Street in in a store window, and I and and now that you mentioned that to me a couple of years ago, I always wondered if it was the same one. Yeah, I think actually only the mask was stolen. The outfit Parkdale had. Oh, okay. It wasn't much of anything, so I don't know if it, it probably got thrown away because without the mask, it wasn't really too impressive. I see. It was, green. It was like green cheap cloth sewn together really crudely. Oh, okay. So it was a Cornelius one. Cornelius. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. It was like, it was like the you know it had like a it looked like a private in the army type of look. So oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, now, you guys, of course, also brought Star Trek into Canada, mm-hmm. and that must have been a, a tremendous success. Yeah, Star Trek was huge. The um, Yeah, I spent a summer actually testing tricorders in the warehouse. That was one of my summer jobs. Oh, really? <laughs> was there a lot of da- defective? or? Uh, we had a batch. You didn't get defective shipments, and so you had to open them up. So if you actually see a a Parkdale tricorder box it might have a staple in it uh-huh. because they were had to be opened and then tested and put back in. And there wasn't really any clean way of of um, repackaging them, so we just put one single staple. And that, that that was you? That was us. So if any collector out there has a staple in their Star Trek uh, communicators, uh, that I probably did that. <laughs> now, um the 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 most topical thing and it's probably one of the most interesting things is, is you're you're auctioning off at Hakes the 12 inch Superman prototype and and I don't know if a lot of people know this but your dad was the creator of the 12 inch superheroes was yeah, he not yeah he yeah he thought it would be a lot more value in a 12 inch piece than the 8 inch pieces he always thought the 8 inch ones were too small. Okay. And I guess when compared to Friday Yanks and G.I. Joe's, you know, why were they sticking with the little ones? Right. Um, the cost back then wouldn't be that much more to manufacture the 12 inch versus the 8 inch. So, mm-hmm. And you can get more money. And it's just a flashier piece. So my dad really wanted those for a long time. And, that's, uh, and he started buying them. And, uh, you know, I think Mego is pretty uh, open to all sides. You know. Yeah. They, they didn't fight back much if he went and said, I'll order them. They started to make them, and I didn't know who had them first, but well, you, you Parkdale did. Yeah, he did. Well, he ordered them. He got them to Sears and everybody else, and uh, you know, I guess he just followed suit after that. Yeah, I think. Well, Mego never released the uh, Parkdale versions in the U.S. About a year later, they came up with a, you know, they changed all the head sculpts and they added gimmicks, and so those are unique to Canada, the U.K., right. and Italy. Yeah. It might have been licensing issues with the Marvel and DC. I I don't know. Um, you know, we didn't really think they would compete. Maybe Mego wanted to differentiate them from the eight-inch pieces more with more gimmicks and right and all that sort of stuff. So I didn't. We really put a little track. You put little beans in. They roll down the slot thing, and whoever wins. I was playing really well with that for about a half hour. They loved. They saw me playing with it and placed a huge order. Oh. That was. It was your first sale. The first sale, my first testing something, you know, I was demoing it for them. My father was quite happy that I was there, I think. Uh, I was always, when I was a kid, I was, I I hung around a lot, and I would actually go as a kid to the Montreal, to the Toy Fair, and just sort of quietly hang out there. Mm -hmm. So it was was a good experience. Any good memories from the Toy Fair? Um. Yeah, you know, it was fun. I don't know. I, I, you know, when you're a kid, it's, you look at business differently. Right. Um, but you know, when you grow up in toys, that's all. You, it's like normal. You know, it's like it's not a. It's not. Yeah, you don't bat an eye, really. Yeah, it's just like oh, the buyers here they're looking at toys, and um, no, it's uh, 
it was fun. It was a good thing. Actually, when I was really young, all I wanted was uh, um, uh, stuff my dad didn't make. So was, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, if it was a Mattel toy or something, that was really annoying. Although he would trade with other, we would have, you know, if I really wanted something, he would find it. Right. Uh, that's funny, though. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? You want the stuff you can have, yeah. Yeah. And uh, but I did a lot when I was in high school. Pretty well, I worked all summers. So, uh, well, even I worked all my. You know, it seemed like I've always been there, working and watching stuff come in and all the uh, the container loads. And in the day, it was a big deal when the container loads came from China because they were there was no skids or anything. Everything had to come in, and it was, it was a big deal for when the, all the stuff came. Right. And I would have won again. So the the Superman prototype. I just want to get back mm-hmm. to that for a yeah. minute. Is that that that's the only one that was spared, or do you remember others being? I don't. You know what? I really don't know. All I know is about ten years ago that was there, amongst other miscellaneous, and I realized, and my dad remembered what he brought back from New York. So that was. We probably had more. Right. Although you know it. Back in the day, they didn't really mean anything. They were just of course, yeah, prototype, and you uh, who needs it, you know. But that was the original one that was from the, and that would he would have, you know, showed at the shows and um, used, you know, for the design and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, other than the Superman, is there any other Mego toys that you've kept from that era, or like out of some? Well, I, I just have bits and pieces of. Of stuff, um, stuff I like to keep. I have, um, but not significant. You know, I have, um, you know, just uh, I probably have a lot of, you know, a lot of collectors would love to have what I have, but it's not a lot. Right. There's, you know, there's probably a bunch of cool stuff. Frankly, I don't really know what some of the, you know, I don't really collect them, so I really don't know the best stuff there. You know, what people are crazy to get. Right. Because it's not what I you just you know, kept I, what you liked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm more excited when I find an old robot hanging around. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's, and that stuff goes. The robots go back right to the 50s. So that's yeah. Earlier. And robots are cool. Of, and there's a lot of cool Mego stuff we have from I have from the 60s that it's not super. It's not licensed or anything. Of course. Old stuff that is like like Mr. Bean Raceways and things like that. That was part of the, the Migos, you know, world back then. Right. And um, even you know, if, um, I don't probably none of the collectors collect see much Maddie Mod, but you know the clothes and stuff were really cool. Right. Yeah. Like uh, I th- I, the story, I think was Madeline, um, the uh, Abrams did the designing for all the clothes. Yeah. And uh, and the Maddie Mod only disappeared because cheaper. Knockoffs to Barbie came, and then they got sort of thrown into the cheaper knockoff people who thought they were all cheap. Oh, I see. They were actually quite nice, and they were just you know just as good or sometimes better than Barbies, except they got you know the Mattel pushed Barbie really hard, and for all all the knockoffs got sort of swept away. And and I guess yeah, there is a whole subculture of people that collect Maddie Mod stuff, and there's some. Oh, I, I have no idea, but there yeah. is. That, you know, that stuff was a big part of the early Mego stuff for my father. Tons of Maddie Mod. And one of the things that you might find surprising is um, Parkdale was one of the only companies ever to produce uh, outfits for the Wonderful Woman doll. Yeah, that, my dad wanted the on the box. I I don't know if we. I know he wanted it for sure. Right, ours had the Wonder Woman with the outfit, like extra outfit on it. Yeah. And he really, I don't know what was his thing, but he really wanted that because it was, it was this better value, you know, it was like a better sale that way. Right. So no, but he sold individual outfits too. Oh, I had no idea. I thought. Oh, really? Were, oh, yeah, we sold lots of outfits. Yeah. And Wonder Woman is very, uh, is very, was very strong. Um, well, I remember another incident. We had a, a shipment of defective knees. Oh, really? Yeah. So we, I spent a couple, about a month. Fixing, replacing the whole legs because you couldn't replace the leg. You had to repl- replacing. You had to replace the whole leg. Oh, so that was. Uh, uh, but yeah, Wonder Woman was really good. 
Yeah. You were saying that you you thought that there was an issue with Linda Carter on the box. You weren't sure. Yeah, but... she wanted more money the second year. I see. So Amigo just said, okay. And pulled her right off the box, yeah. Yeah, they, she wanted to go from like 10000 to $100,000, something in that range. So that's our interview with Lauren Kotzer. I want to apologize to everybody for it cutting off. I had technical errors, and I was not aware I was having a technical error. So I continued the interview for another five or ten minutes, said my goodbyes, and then realized it cut off. So my apologies. Um, I'll try to make sure that doesn't happen in the future. Okay, so this isn't like like the 18-minute the, the gap when this that was the part of the conversation where he told you where like all of the really cool rare stuff was still hidden in the Parkdale warehouse? Yeah, I've actually I've, I've, I've got a map and a shovel. Okay. And, you know, I'll, I'll reveal it when, after I've made my discovery. Mm-hmm. One of the neat things that um, that that Lauren did share with me after the fact is he he's got a company now that produces um, golf club covers, plush novelty golf club covers. Okay. And he now works with Ken Abrams a great deal. Is that right? So it's come full circle that he's now you know Lauren uh, Morris's son is working with uh, with with Marty's son on projects. That's fantastic. And Lauren also has the um, the rights to the Justice League characters, so he's still doing superheroes. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Well, you know, I was kind of thinking during during the interview, like uh, both about him and and Kenny Abrams, and like how um, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a surprise, but they all sort of followed in their father's footsteps. I mean, they grew mm-hmm. up around this kind of business, and you know, and you all are still you know doing it in one one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is kind of neat. It's kind of nice to see, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and two, it's like, um, you know, in in this day and age, uh, in the toy business, um, it's just so different. Everything is like so huge and and corporate now, you know. And like, you know, back then, you just get this feeling that there were, you know, these were really sort of like family owned uh, companies. Um. I mean, I know Mego was, you know, was a corporation and was, you know, on the stock market and all that kind of stuff. But it was still, you know, very much a it's kind of a family business. I think a lot of people have told me over the years, too, that Mego was a family business that just grew too quick, that it still retained that family business feeling, but it mm-hmm. just expanded too large, you know. Yeah. And, and that I think that I think they all started. I mean, Hasbro stands for Hasenfeld Brothers. Um, Mattel was uh, obviously Ruth Handler and, and, and her family. Right. And they just, you know, they've all just grown. Right. Sure. So. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's natural, but it's neat to, it's, you know, like I say, it's neat to listen back to the sort of pioneers and, and what that was like. And what a, just like how cool to hear those stories of him, you know, the story of him uh, playing with a toy in the, in, in the factory and the, the buyers for the catalog coming by and saying, oh, we want that toy. It, it really is neat. And I'm jealous of him because I, my folks used to go to Toy Fair all the time and never take me. And he, he, he obviously got to go to Toy Fair, which is, is really cool. I, to me, it was a candy land I couldn't imagine. Right. But, you know, but. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't seem like it had really, you know, changed his life. And, he's not know. a toy collector. <laughs> Yeah, well, Toy Fair back then probably wasn't wasn't what it is today, but it still would have been fun to see. Um, I don't know. My folks brought me back some neat stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. His uh, I was struck by his discussion of um, or his ad, sort of admiration of the of the Maddie Mod line. Yeah, they're very fond of that. I've spoken to his sister Donna a few times, and that's that's one of her big memories. They she loved Maddie Mod. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know that, and and the the whole discussion about the stuff from the '60s really makes me uh, embarrasses me a little bit because we're so focused on the post AJ era of Mego at the museum, mm-hmm. and you know it's like, well, we really need to we really need to to spend some time uh, going back over some of that some of that early stuff. I know we have a few collectors on the boards that that sort of specialize in that the the sort of novelty toys and the 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 dime store toys that Mego did back in the day. And um, I don't know that, I don't know that I know anybody who really actively collects Maddie Maud. 
they're out there though. I was I was just telling this story to I think my dad the other day. I was at a show a, a couple of years ago, and I found a Maddie Mod outfit on a card. I'd never seen one on the card. It was pink, mm. and it was like a blister card, like mm. like the uh, later model AJ outfits. Right. And it was a dollar, and I bought it. And then you know when I got home, I thought, well, why did I buy this? Other than the euphoria, right? So I put it on eBay, thinking I maybe I'll get ten dollars for it. I got two hundred and fifty bucks. Oh, night. Yeah, and I just thought, and and whoever didn't win was like, if you find any more of those, I'll take them all. And it was crazy. And and uh, so they're they're out there. They're just not hanging around the Mega Museum too much. Sure. And sure. it's something I'd like to change. I think it would be a good mix. But uh, yeah, you're you're right. We're very much uh, eight inch obsessed. Even. I love the pocket heroes and things like that. And even there, I can count the uh, like-minded folks on my hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, no. We like the, yeah, we like the, the eight-inch superheroes. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting, uh, Morris's contention that he just didn't understand. He, did, he, that he didn't like, that he thought the eight-inch heroes were too small. Yeah. You know, and pushed so hard for those 12-inch figures. Sold out. Heck, a lot of those. I guess, I guess so. I, guess so. I remember the 12-inch Heroes when they came out because it was a big deal. And I made my mom drive to like three different stores to get that 9-inch Robin. I thought that was the coolest thing because it was Robin. You know, I, I don't – did you read comics in the 70s? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I was obsessed with Teenage Robin. I thought he looked cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wanted to be him when I was like seven. Okay. I would always buy Batman Family and those kind of comics. Right. So to get a doll of Robin that looked more like an, a young adult right. was a big freaking deal to me. So, and, and I can't remember what other ones I had. I just remember that Robin was like, number one, I need him in that size. Right. So, so when, when, when you're collecting 12-inch Mego heroes um, out in the world, so mm -hmm. to speak, are, are – well, you know, what would you say are the large presenting large percentage of them originating from from Canada? Yeah, it's really easy to spot them. Okay, I would say that almost every Batman you see on um, on eBay and every Spider Man, especially, I think those were the heavily produced figures. Superman and Robin, not so much. I think I think it was primarily Batman and Spider Man. You can you can spot them right away because they're just they're just plain English boxes. If they say Burbank Toys or they they have Harbored on them, they're they're the ones that were produced for the UK market. They they were produced elsewhere in the world in small quantities. Um, and then of course they did second runs in England and and other countries where the artwork changes. You know the artwork on the first four characters that Parkdale did exclusively have really crude drawings on them. Yeah. Like somebody took the eight inch Mego boxes and copied them very quickly. And, and if you look at them, if you really look at them, there's a lot of goofs and mistakes. And whenever, whatever they did a second run of these things for other nations, they corrected that uh, and used proper DC stock art after. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's a little neat little footnote in, into uh, Mego history, and of course we did not get any answer as to why Mister Fantastic is on a twelve-inch Spidey box. Nope. Uh, I think we'll never know, but it doesn't sound like there was ever any intention to produce them. I remember as a kid looking for that everywhere. So, but Mego uh, in Canada never got the twelve-inch uh, Captain America either. That's interesting. Now, and have we, have we ever gotten an explanation as to why Captain America's head is so darn large? Uh, no, I know, I know we've asked about it, but uh... yeah, I don't, I don't know. Except that that's a very late '70s piece, and I'm beginning to wonder if there wasn't a lack of caring going on by that point. A lot of people had left, uh -huh. so it's a little hard to tell. Uh -huh. you know, there's we we talk about all the kind of gray stuff we don't know about from the very early dawn of like the world's greatest superheroes i think we know even less about some of that stuff produced in 1980 1981 hmm. you know like the um 
the pocket superheroes cars in the last issue boxes, which are very rare, or the non-magnetic Batman and Robin, which are almost impossible to find. Right. You know, in the purple and blue boxes, and just odd switch-out stuff like that we don't know much about. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and and uh, just in closing about that, Mister Fantastic. Um, if you're if you're interested, head over to the Mega Museum forums. Uh, check the most recent most recent couple of weeks of uh, finished customs, and uh, there was a really nice custom Mister Fantastic twelve inch figure that somebody did. I think it was Jord Iway. Yeah. And yes, he's he's been rocking the twelve inch customs, putting me to shame because I've been toying with the idea of doing them, and here's a guy doing them and doing a great job. It's yeah. actually it's actually great because um, at the last Mego meet, I got a twelve inch Green Lantern made by Brian Leitner and uh, I think Anthony Durso did the box. Mm. And the impetus for me to get it, so now I'm going to make a twelve inch Aquaman. But I was trying to find the perfect Mego head, and he used. Um, Killer Kane from Buck Rogers which is what I was really thinking of doing myself so I got to see what it looks like blonde so it, it, it's kind of a it was kind of an interesting thing but he, he's doing he's doing a great job and I I, um, I hope to copy him soon <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool yeah it was really nice to see and he did a he, he took the the, the big headed Captain America and made a, a fantastic flash yeah yeah so good stuff. Well, now we're going to switch gears and do another interview that I think you're really going to enjoy. This is an interview with the foremost toy expert in the area of Tomland's famous monsters. And the expert in question is a man named Brian Heiler. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest project, Brian? Yeah, I'm, I'm really jazzed about this because it's one of those things that I'm not only interested in the history of it, but I collect it as well. And I was lucky enough to connect with somebody. And uh, just to give a background, Tomland is uh, one of the more mysterious companies in the 70s that produced Mego knockoffs, meaning that they produced unlicensed action figures meant to kind of catch the sales heat of Mego items. Right. And as... As toy manufacturers go, I would actually have to say that Tomlin, out of everybody, was the most brazen of knockoff companies. They never had a license that I can find. <laughs> Everything they did seemed to be predicated on somebody else doing it. Uh, you know, when Star Trek aliens were hot, they came up with a line called Creatures from Other Worlds. When monster dolls were being sold ad nauseum by Mego and Azra Hamway, uh, Tomland created this line called Famous Monsters, which was obviously aping the magazine, of legend. And what's really ballsy about that is none of the characters in the first four series, the Fly, the Morlock, um, uh, with the Fly, the Morlock, the Abominable Snowman, and uh, what was the fourth, third guy, fourth guy? Oh, the Cyclops. Three of them are based on movie characters. The Fly is from the movie. The Morlock is right from the MGM Time Machine movie from the the late fifties by George Pal, <laughs> and the, the Cyclops is the Ray Harryhausen Cyclops. And I don't know how they, they differentiated. I know they gave neckerchiefs to the Morlock and the, and the Cyclops. Maybe that's what, um, so only the Yeti is really a famous monster of legend. Wow. And then when star Wars became popular, they took all the famous monsters. They took all the creatures from the other world and they, they, they created more characters that look like star Wars characters and they called it star Raiders. Right which is probably their most famous line because it was it was very widely distributed. They also did their own Bionic Man that surfaced in England a couple of times. Uh, and, and their own Bionic Woman. It's very cheap, blow-molded kind of stuff. But the thing that was interesting me the most happened to be the rarest thing, which was in 1980, they re reprised the famous Monsters of Legend line and added four new characters. And the four new characters were Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and the Mummy. Hmm. And what really caught my eye on these was they were copies of the Lincoln Monsters. Not direct copies, but somebody had taken the Lincoln Monsters and gone, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make figures just like this, but I'm going to give them a cartoonier aspect. Huh. 
and th- they're great sculpts. Like they're really neat. They're really cartoony. But the fact of the matter is, is they were impossible to find. A, a couple people had a mummy. One guy had a werewolf. There is a terrible eBay picture of a Frankenstein that everybody had seen, and no one had ever seen Dracula. Wow. So I was whacking the bushes for years trying to find these things. I do all kinds of different advertising through the site. I pay for advertising some places. And it turns up the odd good thing, but never a really big find. Case in point, though, one day I get an email about a month and a half ago that says, I've got the Famous Monsters of Legend series. And I was putting my kids to bed, and I, I, I just quickly emailed the guy back and said, love to see photos. And I, I really expected it to be the much more easier to find first series, not the glow-in-the-dark ones. Okay. So flash forward two days later, the guy agreed to send me photos, but he didn't do it real quick. And uh, flash forward two days later, ironically, I'm in Toys R Us buying a birthday present for a kid I don't know because my son gets invited to a party every other week. And this, I get this email, and while I'm waiting in line, I start to download the picture, and the mummy's face starts going down my BlackBerry. And I drove home like I had a, a nine-month <laughs> pregnant woman in labor <laughs> like and i immediately fired back we struck a deal um it was a comedy of errors getting the stuff you know there's all kinds of obviously worry and refreshing a tracking number but you know what i what i managed to get was many missing links i got a i got a complete set two of them on car three of them on cards two two of the cards had never been seen before mm and um, no one had ever seen Dracula. These are decent photos of Frankenstein. So the first thing I wanted to do was create a website about them and kind of show off and share yeah. these discoveries. And and it, it really did pay for it. A lot of people uh, were excited to finally see them and thank me. And, and one of the things I when, when you do this kind of thing is, is I hope it brings forward more. You know, when, when Jet Jungle was discovered and we put it on the website – they started popping up. People started going, oh, I have a jet jungle. That's true. And this is one of my big hopes is that, you know, God bless somebody who goes, oh, I have a case of those figures somewhere in a basement. It'd be wonderful. I mean, you know, it'd be nice to, to put a name to these. So I created a website. It, it's part of Plaid Steins, but I gave it its own domain, which is TomlinMonsters.com. And it's just a little love letter to these really kind of wonderfully cool action figures you know my heart's always going to be in vintage and especially when when it's stuff like this that's really kind of odd and obscure and and definitely there's a history there we'll never kind of figure out mm-hmm. you know because it, if you uh, why they would five years after the lincoln monsters were released copy them they were not even are the companies related i don't believe they are so I, I couldn't begin to tell you why these why these exist and why they look this way. So it's, well, they uh, are they are they are extremely interesting. I will definitely definitely admit. I'm looking at this site now, and um, God, in a way, I love the fact that you've got you've got the side by side comparisons of uh, the Lincoln figure with the the, the Tomlin figure, and including uh, the the mini monsters? Yeah, those are like little super deformed figures that came out around 1980 that look even more like the Lincoln characters for the most part. Mm. But they almost, look like the, they, they almost look like a middle missing link between the sculpts. Yeah. And um, I really like them. Um, you know, it, it took a while for me to warm to them, but I think they're some of the coolest toys made in, this, in the late seventies, and especially, you know, that is, I, I've I've explained this before. The Lincoln Monsters, my dad sold them, so I have a very uh, special place for them. It's very, it's a very big connection to my childhood. Mm-hmm. So anything that's kind of connected to them, I'm very interested in. That's fantastic. So, and eventually, I am going to probably make a set of Tomlin Monsters trading cards. Oh, but. Um, I think, I, just, you, I think I think you should wait till somebody else somebody else might want to do that. No, I don't know who else could right <laughs> <Okay>. now. <laughs> you you obviously are the man for the job. Yeah. Um, and it's <laughs> so just, nobody had ever seen the the Dracula and Frankenstein. Nope. 
And you know, this is a case. I mean, that Dracula is remarkable. The hair is so unusual. I love it. It's so stylized. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy stylized. Um, now, what, now, did, what's, did, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions. That if sure. You're, if you're listening to the podcast, you're just going to have to go to the website to figure out what I'm talking about. So, like, like, did the Frankenstein not come with shoes, or does your Frankenstein, is he missing shoes, or do you even know? All of the characters that I've seen on the card, which include the mummy, um, nobody has any shoes because their feet glow in the dark. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That is – send the kids out of the room, folks. That is badass. Yeah. Their feet glow in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> totally bizarre. Of course. Um, it, it doesn't make a lot of – I think it makes a lot more sense with like um, some of the first wave characters like the Abominable Snowman and the Cyclops. Yeah. But like Dracula's in a in a tux <laughs> with bare feet, right? So well, it's a little bizarre. But Dracula, uh, Dracula's in a tux. I mean, Dracula, it, Dracula slept in his tux last night. Let's put it. Oh, the, that they, they, that's the other thing that's very indicative of Tomlin's is that the clothes are kind of chintz. They're just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like it's like this guy is totally. It's like if in the movie he's played by Mickey Rourke. Yeah. Th- that yeah. Dracula. Yeah, and, no, and that, the Frankenstein, and, and and I'm sorry, and uh, I'm just ripping off on you now, but it's like, and you're right though, the 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 mummy is so. Uh, I mean, the the Lincoln the Lincoln mummy is weird enough to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Like, why why the sort of bloody starburst eyes to begin with, and then and then you have this like knockoff of the bloody starburst eyes, flesh ears, yeah. And and I, I, the thing I love about that mummy, and I really do love that figure. Like when I first saw it, it, it um, a, a few years ago, when the first one popped up, I was just in love. Is that crappy jumpsuit with blood on it? Right. <laughs> it's just it's just adorable. Fantastic. Yeah. So th- this has been a mild obsession with me and. I, I can't be more satisfied right now. Um, I've said this privately a bunch of times, but if I don't find anything in 2012, I'm okay. So, so what was the what's the story of like who was this person who had these and why did he have them? And you know what? He's a toy collector. Okay. And uh, it's just a case of exactly what I was doing, which was, you know. Um, promoting the fact that I was looking for them through various means that he went, Oh, Oh, you want those? And they were on a bookshelf behind him. No kidding. Yep. Wow. And I think he'd had them for a very long time, but just had no idea anybody was looking for them. That's amazing. Mm. Huh. And actually, and you, you, you had heard other collectors sort of discuss these things and, and, and ponder like, oh, geez, you know, was there even a Frankenstein made? Or, well, that's the thing. Uh, for years, um, they're, they're, they've been kind of shadowy. I, I knew of one person who had the mummy. I think in 2008, a Wolfman popped up on eBay, and it changed hands a couple of times. I know the owner of the Wolfman, uh-huh. and and I was actually speaking with him in like October before I made this find. And he was, you know, while we were talking, he was pulling out his BlackBerry and taking photos for me. And that was, you know, that was one of the photos he sent me, which was the Wolfman and the Mummy on the card. And and I, you know, I was like, oh wow, you know, these are incredible. And and I had asked him, have you ever seen Frankenstein or Dracula? And he goes, no. So. This is, you know, this was a big deal. Frankenstein apparently popped up on eBay around 2000. Nobody Mm. knew what it was. It went very cheap. And uh, the only photo we had was like this thumbnail that was on over at Mego Lake. And I stared at that thumbnail for (laughs) for 10 years. Just, you know, burned a hole in it. So the first thing I did was I sent Lou new photos at Mego Lake. Yeah. Like, please replace that Frankenstein photo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throw it out. Yeah. Well, so. well, that's fantastic. Well, good for you for for tracking these things down, and and as always, you know, great job on on sharing it with the world. I love the hunt, and what's really great about it is there's still I don't know what the card art looks like for Dracula, Frankenstein, or the Wolfman. Right. Good. So there's something to keep working towards, and. 
while I may not find them myself, I'm hoping whoever does will be nice we, enough to share it with the we, world. Return the favor, right? Yeah. On. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're definitely, uh, you know, I know we've talked about it. We're going to have to get Lou on the podcast. Oh my goodness, sometime yes. soon because the whole, you know, the whole Migo like uh, world. It's they're, they're so fascinating because it's, it's I, I it's like seeing, um, it's like seeing a Migo toy uh, in a dream. You know <laughs> where it's like. It's kind of right, but it's kind of wrong and kind of fascinating and kind of wonderful. And, what, like... what, what kills me about this knockoff stuff is I'm 41 years old and I'm still seeing something I didn't see. I've never seen before about once a month. Mm-hmm. Last, last week, something came on eBay. It was a doll. It's an 8-inch Action Jackson knockoff called Tony Bravo with that kind of ridiculous campy, you know, guy yelling in fatigues packaging that, <laughs> and it's, it's like, I've never seen that before. You know, it, it never seems to end. Yeah. The, the, the weirdness. And, you know, I'll give everybody a tip. England. It's like a bathosphere for, for like, you know, you go to the bottom of the ocean, you see things you've never seen before. <laughs> yes. eBay UK is just like you're like what is that you know <laughs> and 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 the netherlands too it seems it's just there's there's always going to be something and that, i love that about it mm-hmm. you know i may not buy it all i may not collect it all but i certainly love looking at it yeah it's cool to know that it's there yeah a few years ago actually another one that i really love is a guy in england uh, goes by the handle retro toy boy sold me uh, an action figure line by lincoln called thrill seekers and they're on they're on the they're on plaid stallions i think i think right. they're on they're on mega museum too they're in the action jackson knockoff section right I remember. these are these are eight inch action jackson knockoffs and they're in brilliantly colorful boxes and they actually their helmets read mego so they they've actually swiped parts from mego to make these toys interesting yeah and you know, again, I'd never heard of these toys up until that day. Am I remembering they have a little bit of an evil Knievel vibe? One of them does, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah hence the thrill seekers thing. He's actually wearing what I would call um, an ersatz evil Knievel outfit, <laughs> and they spray painted Amigo helmet white, so you can't actually make the visor go up and down. Oh, that's cool. Just cheap Hong Kong goodness. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, you think so often, too, about, I mean, when you think about knockoffs nowadays, you think about, you know, like, sort of weird lost in translation uh, toys from Asia that you find in the dollar toy store or whatever, uh-huh. you know. But uh, just the fact that it's like, no, they actually, it comes from all over the world. Um, America and England and, and everywhere else, like wherever there is something, wherever there was something cool that could be conceivably ripped off without too many, too much legal problems, somebody did it. Yeah. You know, and then, and just the fact that the, it, I, I love too, like these monsters, you know, are like, they're clearly made by people who don't necessarily understand monsters, but they kind of, I mean, they're getting to the essence of the thing. But uh, they don't worry about the details. You know, you say that, though, but when I got that box in, like I usually do, I brought it home. I started on unloading it in, in, in my office and taking photos. My kids were all over them. Uh-huh. They just thought they were so colorful and, and friendly. They're, they're very kid-friendly toys. That's cool. They're not. You, you're right. There's not a lot of thought put into their construction. And, and I think my kids would destroy them in under an hour. But there is something very alluring, cartoony, and, and likable about them. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an instant gratification there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, very cool. Good job. Thanks. Again, we look forward to seeing what you what you come up with next. I mean, the, the, the empire of, uh, of Plaid Stallions just uh, continues to grow and add domains along the way. Yeah, it's it's a fun it's it's a fun little network to create, and um, although my GoDaddy bill is getting a little silly, um, you know it, it's it's the kind of thing that seems to to beget itself. 
And uh, right now, case in point, I was talking with a guy, and uh, I'm going to start building a gallery for SSP cars on the site. Oh, cool. It's not something I collect, but uh-huh. uh, he does, and he seems to have one of everything. So it's great to kind of team up with somebody, as I have in the past before. A lot of the galleries in that site, I don't own sure. the items. You know, sure. I've had the help of Bill Frost or Dan Crandall or other uh, Charlie Balicki, friends like that, who've right. come along and said, photograph anything you want. So hopefully that continues forward. Absolutely. It's mm. uh, awesome. We love the Internet. The internet's is good to us. Good things come from the internet. All right, man. Well, okay. this is yeah. This has been fun. Thanks for introducing us to the world of Tomland monsters. And, no problem. Uh, w- w- check w- check it out at uh, what's the URL again? Tomlandmonsters.com. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, that about does it for the show. Um, thanks to everyone who participated. Next week on the Amigo Museum podcast, we're going to bring you the results for the 2011 Cubby Awards. Uh, we held off doing that uh, this week because we wanted to run this interview. And also um, to let you know that we started a voicemail line to take calls for the podcast. So if you would like to uh, have your voice heard uh, discussing um, your favorite uh, Remigo figures for the last year. There's still time to call into the voicemail line for to include it on next week's podcast. Um, if you give us a call at 213-444-MEGO, uh, it's 213-444-MEGO, um, call in before Saturday evening and we'll be able to include you on next week's podcast. When we're discussing the 2011 Cubby Awards, um, so it's a great time to be a Mego fan, a great time to be a collector of these toys. So thanks for listening, and this is Scott for Brian um, signing off and saying, as always, collect them all.